a long, long time ago, probably almost uh, 15 years ago, Laura and I got married, and she moved into, <laughs> she walks out, she, she moved into uh, to an awesome apartment. This apartment, it was beautiful. It was sparsely decorated. It had a large German shepherd in it, and um, all my furniture and stuff. And since she married me, she got to move into my apartment. And I don't know what was wrong with her, but I think it was about two weeks, she decided that we really needed to find a house. And I don't know why, because the apartment was nice, had a pool, had a workout area, a racquetball court. Um, but she decided we had to move. And the next thing I know, she was dragging me out of the apartment to go see a house. And it was a, a cute little Cape Cod. It was, it was tiny. It was, like a little, it was like a dollhouse almost, right? But they had update, um, raised the roof on it so there was a bedroom upstairs and they put a, a sunroom in the back and it was, it was absolutely perfect for us. So we put an offer down on the house. And we went through the inspection and the inspector came and we walked down in the basement. This was not a new build, this was an old house. And he pointed out to us the foundation wall was bowed like nobody's business. And if you stood just right, you saw this thing was bowed. So we had a decision to make. Do we uh, buy the house that's going to collapse in 5, 10, or 20 years, or do we fix it? Because you see, you can fix a bowed foundation, just cost a pretty penny. So we decided we would, uh, we would buy the house, and a couple weeks after we moved in, some guys showed up with big steel I-beams and jackhammers and cement mix, and, and they made some noise in the basement. And when they were finished, there were big I-beam pillars were reinforcing the wall with cement and then nailed and screwed and bolted. I don't know what they did, but the point is that the house wasn't going anywhere. The house was on a solid foundation. Well, today I want to do some foundation checking, so we're going to go to uh, Patty's house, if that's all right. Um, we'll all follow. I want to do some foundation checking in our lives. I want to look at um, the foundation upon which our faith rests and to make sure that it is truly uh, where it should be. And if we need to do some repair work, we could do it. Now I'm going to do this a little bit differently. This is, a, this is not going to be a, a typical sermon. Um, we'll see what God does with it. But I'm going to, to get to the basics. But before I do, I want to read you a sizable portion of Scripture. Now, you have to realize, pastors are encouraged today to read no longer than about 60 seconds because the modern American mind can't stay focused for more than 60 seconds typically. If you watch commercials, these would be 30 seconds. Watch closely. Most commercials are going to 15 seconds now. My thought is, since the Bible commands us to, to meet together frequently, and one of the reasons is to, to read the Word of God, let's give it a shot. Let's, let's trust that, that God will open our ears to hear. I'm going to read all four Gospels. We'll be out of here by 2 o'clock. I'm going to basically read a full chapter of the Bible. I'm going to start in Matthew 27, verse 27. Ah. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man from Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, Ha! He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's a king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the day after pre the, day, the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of your soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me.
While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's Easter. Now there are some questions that people don't ask. You guys know better than to ask questions of a particular type, right? The uh, How do you know God's real question? Well, see, if you've been in church for a long time, you don't want to ask because people might think you're crazy. Or, how do we know the Bible really is the Word of God? Well, we just do. You don't ask that question, right? That's a dumb question. It's obvious. <clears throat> Perhaps you've not gone to church, and you wonder, how do we know Jesus is the Son of God, and you don't know where to go to ask the question? Well, I'm obviously joking. There's no such thing as a dumb question, other than the question that's not asked. So today I want to get to those questions that are often uh, embarrassing to ask, to make sure we know the answers. And if we know them, great, we'll have them reinforced. But if we didn't know them, I don't want anyone to ever walk out of this place and not have an answer to it. So let's start with this most basic question. What does the death of Jesus have to do with me? It's a great story, right? It's got, it's got a love. It's got um, treachery. It's got death. It's got resurrection, which a lot of good movies don't have. But it's got all, all this great stuff to make a great story and a great plot. But what does it really have to do with you and with me? Well, let's start way back in the beginning. Genesis. Remember the book of Genesis? That dry stuff at the beginning, right? It is rough. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the water, or face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's the first three verses of Genesis. God made everything and populated the earth. And everything was good. Everything was perfect. And then we get to Genesis 3. Isn't it great? You got 66 books. Something like 1180 chapters, and, and people mess it up after two. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. And the serpent came by, and he tricked Eve, who then gave the fruit to Adam, and they ate the forbidden fruit. And after that, it's all downhill. Because of Adam, we're all in bad shape. Now, most people say Adam and Eve were not real people. You understand that? Most people that profess to be Christians will say Adam and Eve were not really real. Ask someone who identifies as a Christian if Adam and Eve were real and watch the answers you get. Non-Christians will tell you Adam and Eve weren't real because we know God made people from monkeys, right? So it, it was a bozo to chimpanzee that, that started sin, no. Here's the deal. If Adam and Eve were not real people, Jesus did nothing. Our faith is pointless. You understand that? Adam and Eve, for the work of Christ to, be, to, to have a, a point had to be genuine, honest-to-goodness, real people created by God who lived in the Garden of Eden and ate the forbidden fruit. 
Why? Romans uh, 5.12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, namely Adam. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For in Adam, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. The work of Christ to have validity must counter the work of Adam. So it's like this. You know how you can inherit bad genes from your parents? You know, if your parents are short, you're typically short. If they're ugly, well, we won't talk about that. <laughs> well, we inherited not physical ugliness from Adam, but sin. Because when he ate the fruit, and we're all seed of Adam, we got sin in us. So we're born in a state of sin. If you don't believe that, you can visit my house and watch an eight-month-old child. I didn't teach him to scream and yell for what he wants. He just knew to do it by nature. I'm not a bad guy because my parents messed me up. I was a bad guy before they messed me up. They just exacerbated the badness, right? I'm kidding about that. What I'm not kidding about is we're all born in a state of sin. We're not, we're not separated from God because of the choices we make, primarily. We're separated from God because of who we are by birth. Now, because of who we are, we sin, which separates ourselves by our actions from God. But you know when you look at the little baby? Oh, they're so cute and cuddly and innocent. Ooh, careful with that, because deep down inside that baby you have something called original sin, which our good, good, great, great, great granddaddy Adam passed down for us. But before you beat on Adam, realize you would have eaten fruit too. So when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they went from a position of perfect fellowship with God to a position of unrighteousness before God. And they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 is a story of God's work to reconcile humanity to himself, to make the unrighteous righteous again. <clears throat> Romans 1, 1 through 3.20 are some of the most depressing passages of the Bible that you can read. I highly recommend you read them again. Um, what Paul makes completely and utterly clear is all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not one. You hear the question, well, what about the innocent person who lives on the island in the middle of nowhere that's never heard about Jesus? They go to heaven. They do. But there's no innocent person who lives on an island in the middle of nowhere. We're all guilty before God. You understand that? And if you don't, read Romans 1, 1 through 3.20 and you'll understand it clearly. Those who haven't accepted Christ have suppressed the truth. If people seek after God, God will reveal himself to them. So, what does Jesus have to do with us? There's a holiday, a Jewish holiday called Yom Kippur. You know what Yom Kippur is? I love when they put foreign words on holidays and you've got to really dig to figure out what it means. Yom means day, Kippur means atonement. Why not just call it Day of Atonement? It's a Day of Atonement. And on the high holy day of Yom Kippur, what would happen would be the high priest would bring two, two lambs. One for sacrifice to be bled, the other cast out in the wilderness. And each year this would happen and the people's sins would be forgiven as they repented for them and they'd be rewritten in the book of life. When Jesus died in the story I just read you, we had the ultimate Yom Kippur. It was a once and done. You're not written in the book of life each year. You're written permanently. A permanent marker that never goes away is you accept Christ and accept the forgiveness for your sin through Christ. What does the death of Jesus have to do with me? We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all separated from God. We're all unrighteous before God, each and every one of us. And because of that, God forgives us through Christ. Can I throw another question out there? Why didn't God just do it without killing Jesus? God's all-powerful, right? Means he can do everything, anything, right? Why wouldn't he just do it that way? Good question, huh? Come on. 
Can I, can I really bother you? God can't do anything. You thought God was all-powerful and couldn't do anything he wanted? He can't. Am I limiting God? I'm limiting God. Have I gone heretical? I, well, I don't know. Maybe I have. Maybe I haven't. Can God lie? So God can't do anything, can he? By choice, God limits himself in certain areas. God is perfect, so he cannot do anything imperfect. God gives you a promise. He cannot break his promise. See where I'm going here? God's all-powerful. He won't lie because he's perfect. In a sense, he can't lie. God could not forgive us apart from the work of Christ. Why? God is a multifaceted God. God is a loving God. We all like the loving God, right? Oh, come sit on my lap. I love you. We don't like the, the uh, wrathful God. Uzzah, you're dead. You touched the ark. Let me clear this up for you, because I, I had it cleared up well for me <clears throat> this week. OTNT, Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament God is a little bit angry, no? Pharaoh's getting whacked with all the firstborn in Egypt. Uzzah's going down for touching the ark. You got Sodom and Gomorrah getting smote. You got people drowning in the sea. God is fired up. And then we get to the New Testament, and we sin, and God's like, oh, come on. Come on, don't sin anymore. I love you so much. Oh, I forgive you. Come sit on God's lap. That's how some people see God. Can I explain the difference? God doesn't change. God didn't get old and cuddly, you know, like, like a grandpa with grandkids. Why can, I, can we digress? Why does that happen? When I was a kid, I lost a tooth. I got a nickel. My kid's taking 10 bucks for two teeth. Same mom, but she changed. I'm not going down that route. What's that? Inflation, yeah, inflation. <laughs> God didn't change like a grandparent. He didn't go from the, from the parent to the grandparent. You know, I, I had that grandparent. I couldn't understand how my grandpa, my mom would say that, that he would punish them. What are you talking about? Pa never gets mad. Well, that's not the difference between God. The difference is this. In the Old Testament, you see God's wrath quickly. You see it happening right away. In the New Testament, you know where God's wrath is? puts it out in the future. Because he wants to give people a chance to repent and to turn and not face that wrath. Uh, the book of Revelation, probably one of the most neglected books in all the Bible, after only uh, Leviticus and Numbers, you read that, that book and then you tell me that, that God has uh, lost his, his wrathful side. There is a passage that talks about blood running uh, neck high on a horse for miles and miles as God judges those who are uh, right standing with him. God has not changed, but we neglect God's wrath because it's pushed out into the future. Don't. God is a, a holy God. He's a wrathful God, but He's a loving God. But you can't pick and choose which side you like best. You get the whole thing or nothing. So, why Jesus? Well, because God is a holy, righteous God. That means that if there is sin, sin has to be dealt with. If I say in my house... If you don't clean up, you will be punished. And they don't clean up. If I was perfect, they would be punished. I don't keep going, if you don't clean up, you're going to get punished. Listen, if you don't clean up, you, you didn't hear me. If you don't clean up, you're going to get punished. I'll just do it. Go outside. That's not how God works. It's not how I work either. God says, if, if you do A, if you sin, you will have B, a consequence for your sin. You are removed from me. You go from righteous to unrighteous. And I will deal, I have to deal with all righteousness because I'm perfectly just and holy. 
So we have all sinned and we've, we've developed a, a debt that we can't repay. No person can repay it. So God sent Jesus because Jesus was the only one who could pay that price. And Jesus chose to come and pray, pay that price for us. We owed him a legal debt. Now there's an illustration about a, a judge who has a guy come before him, right? You've, you've probably heard this one. He declares the guy guilty. He takes his robes off, walks down, and pays the price for the guy. Have you guys heard that illustration of the, uh, the, the atoning work of, of Christ? Yes? No? It goes like this. There's a judge, and this guy comes into his court. Say the guy stole a loaf of bread. And the judge says, we, we have clear proof. You stole a loaf of bread. You're found guilty. You must pay $50 to the baker. The guy says, I don't have $50. The judge says, well, you owe $50 takes off his robe, he goes back into his chambers, he takes $50 out of his wallet, he comes and stands next to the condemned man who owes $50, he pays it to the court, the guy's debt is paid, he's free to go. It's a good illustration, right? It's a little bit off, though, when it comes to God. Let me explain it this way with God. Imagine there's this guy who uh, committed murder, intentional murder, what do you call it? Premeditated uh, murder. He killed this guy violently and viciously. He pursued him, he found him, he killed him, there was no doubt he did it, he comes before the judge. Guess who the judge is? The dead guy's daddy. Now in our legal setting, that judge would be recused from the case, right? But in God, in God's situation, God doesn't recuse himself because he can judge perfectly. But somebody killed the judge's kid and the guy who killed him is standing right before the judge and the penalty for killing the judge's kid is death. And the judge declares that the man who killed his son shall die, not because it was his son, but it's because it's what the law demands. Now watch this. The judge takes off his robe, walks into his chambers, and hangs it up, but he doesn't grab 50 bucks. He walks out, he stands next to the guy and says, I'm going to take that death for you in your place. The guy just killed his son, and he's coming off the bench to die in his place. That gets a little crazy, doesn't it? Now you understand who Jesus was, right? God in the flesh. And you understand why he came voluntarily? Because... We had sinned, and we had accrued a debt that we couldn't pay, and that debt was meant that we were going to have to face the full wrath of God. Now, if you want to get scared, think about what the wrath of God is. You hear the expression, scare the hell out of you? If you read the Bible, it will scare the hell out of you, literally. It's not like a parent yelling at their kid. God doesn't come screaming. But if you've had... When my dad would come home from work, and my sister and I had one of those days when we weren't acting quite right, you hear the garage door go up. And mommy, please don't tell him, please don't wake up, he's good, we're never, ever, ever going to do anything, we clean the whole house, we're so sorry. And it was like on her if we were going to live through the night at this point. And she's going to your rooms, don't tell him, don't tell him, don't tell him. So we're running down the hallway, we shut our doors, and my sister and I would talk under the doors. Do you hear him? Was she saying anything to him? What are they talking about? And then you hear my dad's feet coming down the hallway, and we would, we would actually believe maybe my mom didn't tell him what we were doing. And his feet would come down the hallway. And, and me, I can't speak for my sister. She might not have cared too much. She didn't get in much trouble. My dad would open the door. He wasn't yelling, Where are those kids? I'm going to... He'd come down the hall. The door opens. And, and I remember sitting there with this fear. Now, I wasn't afraid my dad was going to like start beating me to death. But I had, I had a respect for the man. And all he would have to do is say, I hear you were not acting respectfully to your mother. I'm sorry, I don't know what I was thinking. It was just his presence. Now multiply that by about a billion times and you got God. I think sometimes we think of God as like, a, you remember knuckle tap Jesus? 
Jesus is my homeboy. Hey, God, how you doing? We're good. We're good because of Jesus. Well, yes, we are, but, but let's have a little respect going there. Because when God, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and God came by, they were like, mm, that's good. I hope what you said. We don't care. Let's go. You'll forgive us. They were hiding from God. They're acting crazy is what they're doing. In this passage I read, when, when the angels showed up, what do the people do? Oh, cool. It's an angel. It's Michael Landon. What was was it, touched by an angel or something? (laughs) Sometimes our theology is influenced by our television. When you read the Bible and an angel shows up, people fall down and shake. These are angels. This is not God in the flesh. This is not God. When you see God, when you meet Jesus in heaven, you are going to grin ear to ear. You are going to be happier than you've ever experienced happiness. But you're also going to have a bit of the, the fear of the Lord put in you clearly. You can approach him directly, but we need to understand who God is. That's what Easter's all about. Jesus had to come because we owed a debt, and that debt was a wrath of God, and that's not like a little swat on the tush and you move on. It's pretty darn bad, about as bad as you can imagine, to face the wrath of God. We couldn't take it on our own, and we're separated God forever. But the Son of God came and died so that you and I could become sons and daughters of God. So... There's your foundation check. But I'm not done with you yet. What does the death of Jesus have to do with me? We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Why did Jesus have to come? Because there is no other way for our sin to be forgiven other than through Christ. That's the say what, now the so what. Let's go back to Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to give you four applications for the so what. I'm sitting there, a little dirty secret of pastors who... I should say pastors who preach their own sermons, is that uh, when you go to the holidays, Christmas and Easter, how do you come up with a sermon? I mean, what do you do with the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Well, I think there's 66 books on that. What do you pick? How, how do you do this? Christmas? It's, what, do you, what does the uh, birth of Christ have to do with that? Well, it, it's kind of the point of the whole thing, you know? So, so we have a little trouble coming up with what to preach. Well, here's what I'm going to do this week. Next week... I'm going to go a different route. Next week will be interesting. I think you'll like that. I hope my back will work with me too. But let's go back to Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, so it's still dark outside, right? Sometimes we think of the sunrise as when Jesus rose from... No, it's before the sun came up. The tomb was empty at sunrise. Towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, I think that's kind of cool. How did God roll the stone back? He shook the earth. That's kind of cool, right? He could have just pushed it. He could have had the angel push He shook the earth. He rolled it back, and then what did the angel do because he rolled back the stone? He kind of sat on top of it, like, yeah, look at me. And there were these soldiers there. Well, first his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Crybabies lying with their face in the ground. Don't hurt us, don't hurt us, don't hurt us. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Crucified, He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I love that combination, fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. 
And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The first thing that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has to do with us is the look part. Verse 6. He's not here, for he is risen. Come, see the place where he lay. The, the stone was rolled back not to let Jesus out, but to let people look in. Here's one of my favorite things about our faith. It is a historical, examinable, verifiable faith. Faith in Christ is not a whimsical hope of a, of a future desire that's based on ignorance and bliss. It's an assurance of Hebrews 11, right? It's an assurance of, of things hoped for. It is, it is a guaranteed, it's an, examinable, uh, it's an examinable historical faith which can be proven beyond any reasonable doubt. Now that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as, as faith involved in living our lives. We have a future that we have yet seen, but we can be assured of the future because of the validity of the promises of the past and how they've been kept. Our faith is based, based on looking. Examine it, press it, question it, challenge it, because you will see that the truth rests on a solid foundation, which is Christ. You will never meet a person who can honestly tell you that I examine the claims of Scripture and I find them faulty or lacking. Hogwash. You will find lots of people who will make the claim that the Bible's not true, but they've not really read it. Or they've distorted the truth of it. The Bible is a historical document in large part which is verifiable, examinable, and provable, and our faith rests on a secure foundation. Look, because when you look and see and experience the reality of Christ, you will be unable to help but go out and tell people about it, which we'll get to in a minute. Verse 5. The, remember, the guards are laying on their faces crying. They're scared. And the angel says to the Marys, fear not. Through the work of Christ on the cross, we have nothing to fear. Stop and think about that. What makes you afraid in life? You don't have to yell it out loud. That could be a little embarrassing. Someone yells, I'm afraid of ponies. There are things in life that make us afraid. A lot of people would say they're afraid of dying. I don't know many people who look forward to the, through, to the, uh, the process of death in, in this side of heaven. But most people look, look with great fear to dying because what happens when you die? Well, guess what? We don't have to be afraid. I can tell you exactly what happens when you die. I'm not looking forward to it, the process of dying. I'd like to go in my sleep of an aneurysm at 92, but I'd like to get to the other side. I'm not afraid of what happens when you die. On this side, realize this. Because of the work of Christ... We've become friends of Jesus. We've become sons of God. If God is for us, Paul says, who could be against us? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous hand. You remember that one from Isaiah. When you're right with God, you're in right good shape. Jesus tells us at the end here, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. There is absolutely nothing to be afraid of when you're in right standing with God through Christ. And there is nothing you should not be afraid of when you're in wrong standing with God by rejecting Christ. Stop and think about it. Spend some time thinking about the things that scare you in your life. We all have plenty of them because we all still struggle with sin. We're forgiven for it, but yet it's a process as we grow, as we grow in maturity and the sin becomes less. Think about the areas that cause you fear. Bring them before God. There is no reason. Jesus says, do not be anxious, right? What good is worrying going to be doing about tomorrow? Because of the work of Christ, we have nothing to fear. Verse 6, believe just what he says. It says, he's not here for he is risen as he said. Our verse in our house this week was Proverbs 30, verse 5. And I have to do it lyrically, right? Every, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who, takes re who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. 
If God says it, it's going to happen just like God said it. Now, it doesn't always make sense how. Jesus, three years with his disciples. They know he's a Messiah, right? What happened to their Messiah? He got nailed up on a cross. Whoa, how'd that? Whoa, this isn't supposed to go down like this. Then their Messiah got dead. How's the Messiah get dead? He said he was the Messiah. We knew he was the Messiah, but then he got dead on the cross. Is he really the Messiah? Oh, he's really the Messiah. Because he came back from there. And if he didn't die on the cross, he wouldn't really be the Messiah. See, my point is this. Everything God says is true. It might not play out how you expect it. It might not go according to your plan. But it will happen perfectly. And when you see the conclusion of it, you're going to say, Oh my goodness, you know what you're doing. Everything God says is true. If Jesus came to die on the cross to forgive us for all our sins, which is what the Bible says, and you hear someone say that you have to work off your sin, which billions of people believe, I'm not going to name names, either Jesus is lying or, or, or some institution is lying. If Jesus calls you a friend, you can believe that you're his friend no matter what. If God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, if God says you have nothing to fear, if God says that I know the plans I have for you, Stand on those promises. You want to see a promise in the Bible? Do this, do that with your thumb and read. This thing is full of hundreds, probably thousands of promises from God. And every single one of them is true. Just as he said. And the disciples looked back on the life of Christ and through the eyes which the Holy Spirit allowed them to see more clearly, they said, oh, now it makes sense. Yeah, now it makes sense. Same thing's true for us. Let's learn from the past. So, look, fear not. Believe just what he says. And here's a hard one. Verse 7, the angel says, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. You go ahead to verse 16. uh, Verse 18 of that chapter. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's the worst thing about our faith? If we took a poll, I think the fact that we're supposed to share it is is a killer. I think I've told you guys when I was in seminary, I took a, well, you all had to take a a course in evangelism. And the the grade was half on a test, half on going out and sharing the gospel with ten separate people. And the professor had been teaching long enough, he had all figured out, in person, people you don't know directly, you have to get, and you went out with someone else. And we all, 99% of us in seminary, avoided that class like the plague. We petitioned the dean to get out of it. This is not an appropriate way to share the gospel. Blah, blah. We all had all different excuses. We can make a biblical argument against it by distorting scripture. And we all had to take the course. And I remember going out the first time, and it was horrible. I went to Caribou Coffee with, a, with my friend Steve Erickson, who was, who was the uh, guy who oversaw me in that course. And we're sitting at Caribou Coffee, and I've probably shared this story five times. It's a sign of me getting older. I'll do it. For, you know, you'll have 30 more years of this. And I remember sitting with Steve, and uh, there was this, this guy sitting off to the side. All by, first, I had to find someone by themselves, because a good hunter knows you take the, the animal out of the pack. You don't want to go to a group. So I took the person by themselves, and, and I have sweat kind of coming down my back a little bit, and my heart's going kind of fast, and... And I sat down and, hi, um, I don't even remember what I said. It was probably something like this. I'm a seminary student over Trinity. I'm taking a course on evangelism. And one of the requirements of having a course, we have to share the gospel with people. Would you mind if I talk to you a little bit about God? And the guy looked at me and he said, oh yeah, I'm a student at Moody, which is a Bible institute in the city. And I thought, oh, come on, 25 minutes I worked up for this and it blew up. Because <laughs> that encounter the person's a Christian I come to find out. You can't resave people. 
But the reality is, after a lot of years from taking that course, when I went, and I'm so glad I took that course, because by person 10 it was a lot different. When I went out that first time, it was all about me. What are they going to think about me? Do I have a good presentation? Can I, can I make them understand the truth? Why do I not want to do this? This is not fun to me. Why did God stop and slow down, John? Because here's what it is. You see, Jesus came and died on the cross because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in that state, we're all unrighteous before God. But because of Jesus, we can all be in a right standing with God. We have the cure that the world so desperately needs. It's not my job to make people believe, and quite frankly, I shouldn't care a whole heck of a lot what they think of me because I'm a friend of Jesus. And by default, people aren't going to like me very much in the majority because I associate with a guy they're not too happy with. But that guy who came, remember the judge who, who died in place of the one who killed his son? That guy who came, that ruler who doesn't look like a ruler the world expects, but who yet is king of the universe, came down, became one of us, and died on the cross and invited me to be a son of God and call him friend and come before the Father directly. And the Father said, hey, I got a job for you. What's that? Well, I'm not going to take you to heaven right away. Well, why can't I go to heaven right away? I'm good now. Well, because I have a job for you. And one of those jobs is I want you to go and tell all of these people I love how much I love them and what I've done for them through Christ. And they're going to be messed up, so messed up, in fact, that I'm going to have to do the work for you. So you let me speak through you. You let me direct your feet. You let me give you the words to say. You just use your mouth for my glory. And you use your life for my glory. And you get to know who I am. You look and see. You realize you don't have anything to fear. You enjoy the bountiful, abundant life that I want to give you. And go ahead and do this uncomfortable thing for me of go and tell people how much I love them. And little by little, the more fully I've understood who I am, who God is, and what Jesus did for me, and then I look at people, and rather than get irritated by their intellectual objections, which are so foolish that you just want to smack them. Yes, pastors want to smack people, not in their church, outside of their church. You start to see them for who they really are. People just like me. People who have chosen for many years to suppress the truth. Because on our own, we can't do anything good. People who are fighting like heck because they don't want to have to believe in God, but people who God loves so much that he died on the cross for them. And he told me, and he told you, as you love Jesus, to go out and tell them how much he loves them. Not tell them they're an idiot, not tell them they're a fool, or how, how ignorant they are. To tell them how much he loves them. And let God open their eyes. So from the first time I'm at Caribou, shaking and sweating and wishing that guy didn't have to go with me, because I could have made up a heck of a good story about how I shared my faith with someone who was fictitious, not really there, but, you know, there are maybe invisible people. Now I would go to a coffee shop, and I sit down in the coffee shop, and I ask God to give me an opportunity to share my faith with somebody. I interact with my neighbors. I say, God, would you give me an opportunity to talk about you in this conversation? Don't make me force it. You guide it. When I'm around friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors, my goal is always to show them and tell them how much God loves them because of what he's done for me. Now I still get a little bit of the palpitations. I sweat a little bit, not as much. But I look forward to the opportunity to talk with people. Why? Because I recognize who I am and who they are, and there's not any difference at all apart from the work of Christ, which I've accepted and they've yet to. And I've seen God open some people's eyes who you wouldn't expect. And I understand the reality of the fact that God doesn't determine success by how many people you bring to faith, because you will never bring a person to faith. God determines success by how faithful we are to live for his glory. And if you want to experience joy, it's not listening to a good Bernie Mac joke, which is funny. Joy is found when you see someone's eyes opened up to the truth. Joy is found when you see someone take a step a little bit closer to realizing who God is. Joy is when, you know when you've ever seen a baby be born? 
It's pretty exciting. The newborn baby, they're all gooky, yucky, nasty, but it's kind of, it's just exciting. You can forget about everything around you. Well, it's even more exciting when you see a, an old person born again. I don't mean the gooey little baby. I mean one of us ugly people walking around. Born again in Christ. Because the baby lives on this side of heaven for a certain number of years, which God has numbered. On the other side of heaven, there ain't no number on the days. And when you see someone come to faith and realize that they're going to live forever in God's presence as a friend of Jesus and right standing before God, it changes God's command to go and tell from burden to a blessing. Now that I've rambled on with an aroma of wintergreen fresh surrounding me and I'm woozy in my head, my hope today is this that you understand a little bit more fully the foundation upon which our faith rests, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's a stinking awesome reality upon which it rests. And the more fully we understand that, the more amazed we will be by the grace of God, and the more we will understand what it means to be fearful of God and joyful at the same time. Not fearful in the way the world thinks of fear, but a biblical sense of awe before the only one who is truly awesome. In fact, perhaps we'd better be better served to call God awful, space between the awe and the full. Our God is an awesome God. He came down from heaven. He died on the cross for us so that we could live the lives he calls us to. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that this Easter that you would help all of us more fully understand who you are, who we are, and what's so awesome about Easter. I pray you would uh, help us not relegate it to the second favorite holiday on the Christian calendar, but the most important day of our lives, the ultimate Yom Kippur, the day that allowed us to become sons and daughters of God. That you would not allow the world to distract us from the truth by the lies it propagates, but that you would help us to take a look and see what and who the truth really is. That you would so deeply fill our lives with the Holy Spirit, we could do nothing but focus on you and serve you and glorify you and know what true joy is. The life of a friend of Jesus is not one of monotony and drudgery and treachery. It is, a, it is an abundant life, a joyful life. It is what, it is what all people try to, try to find and achieve, but in the wrong way. Please help us find and achieve it the right way, God. For your glory, in your way, at all times. God, we thank you so much for the fact that you hear our words, that you care for us perfectly, that you are in fact infatuated with us. You, you care about each and every aspect and moment of our lives, and that we are reconciled to you. We are your children who can come before you anytime we like, who are cared for you perfectly, who are being prepared for an eternity in heaven. And I pray that you would use us to bring many of our brothers and sisters alongside us into the gates of heaven as we walk through there into your immediate presence. God, thank you for what you have done through Christ and all you are and will do in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.